I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Bo Butler. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to now. It is too late. The evacuation still proceeds, but it's all theater. There are no lights inside the cars, no light anywhere except the fur of the feral hamsters here in the Great Concavity. I don't know why, thank but you, I've always imagined that, that the feral hamsters glow for some reason. Mm. Uh huh. That's reasonable. I, I don't know um, where I get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so of course that was uh, that was the opening line of Gravity's Rainbow. Is I that believe. a David Foster Wallace novel? I don't recognize that novel. Sorry, <laughs> it's David Foster Wallace. Let's let's call it maybe the novel without which you wouldn't have David Foster Wallace, mm. and therefore this podcast. Mm. Oh yeah, mm. that's probably true. Okay, actually. <laughs> So, you know, if you haven't heard of it, I mean, that's okay. Um, we covered it over over on the uh, Pension in Public podcast if you need a little help getting through it. And Welcome you might. to our show, Bo. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I re- I'm going to continue to to be hard on you guys for a while. But I yeah, do, ham it up, man. I do appreciate you having me on the show. And, oh, and yeah. Really, uh, can you give us a breakdown of the best way to pronounce the word Pension or Pinchon? Oh yeah, I was going to ask about this too. That's a it's a really good question. I had I had only ever heard pension mm-hmm. until I met the the former co the former host of the show, my former co producer co producer Chris. He always called it pension, but he was from like Eastern Pennsylvania, so I thought maybe that was like an East Coast pronunciation. But then that's where the family is kind of from. So I honestly don't know either way. I personally like to say pinchin just because it also sounds like a verb and it confuses people. And <laughs> I like to confuse people. So that's what I go with. Sure. Yeah, I say pinchin as well. I just think, I think anything else sounds like super pretentious. I Yeah. I mean... You, you're, you're talking about pension, so it's going to sound pretentious, but there's levels of, of acceptability, <laughs> and I agree with you there. Um, so let's let's back up uh, about a half sure. step and say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. welcome, Bo. Um, Thank you. To episode 43 of pension, The Great Concavity. Public is our longtime nemesis, I mean friend of the pod. and uh, Frenemy. We absolutely love uh, your show, and we love that we um, have a friendly, if not serious, rivalry. Uh, Although, I would say you have a much larger team that could take us down in a street fight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, We really just have Dave and I, and your panels... And one um, guest at a time. (laughs) One guest at a time, usually. Usually, sometimes two. Right. um, Your your panels, do you want to... Give us a history of how you got involved in the podcast, who's involved in it now, the panels, the whole thing. Sure. Um, so I actually didn't start the podcast. Uh, it was my former co-producer, Chris. He was in college and he wanted to do an independent study on Gravity's Rainbow, apparently because he read the book and he hated it. I'm not sure why then he wanted to do an independent study, but whatever. But he couldn't find any of us, any professors that would take that on. 
And so <laughs> when he finished college, he just sort of put this idea out there of starting this podcast. And um, there was already there's already sort of a, a communal group called that does this pinch on in public, which is on mm-hmm. the, the 8th of May every year, which is Pynchon's birthday. And the idea is just to take a picture of yourself out in public reading one of Pynchon's books. And, you know, it's kind of get at this idea. Obviously, Pynchon is one of our most notoriously, I don't really want to call him reclusive, but he definitely does not like the public eye. Sure, yeah. Um, so the idea was to sort of kind of play with that a little bit. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so Chris reached out to one of the guys involved in that and they started doing the podcast. I got in on the second episode and, and from there it really, I mean, I don't want to say that I was like the reason that it really took off, but (laughs) I, I I had at least the technical know-how to make it a little better and to really sort of put it together. And then Chris and I worked together for many years uh, we've done five seasons. We're on the fifth season right now. Um, mm-hmm. And we've had, we always had sort of put out this call at the end of the show that if you wanted to be on the show, just uh, email us. And over the years, we picked up a lot of different panelists. We've had panelists on from many different countries. Mm-hmm. And that's been really cool. I enjoy that a lot. And um, yeah, I like the Irish fellow that you had on for the. End of the Gravity's Rainbow one? Uh, yeah, Liam. He's been on the show since, I think, our second, maybe third season. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's Liam, fun to listen to. Yeah, he's fun to listen to. And he definitely does not have the Irish accent that we all think of when we think of an Irish <laughs> accent. Um, yeah. yeah, and so we, we sort of hit a point where we had this particular group of panelists. And I told Chris... I think this is the group that we can tackle Gravity's Rainbow with. That was sort of like, mm. you know, the big thing. Like, were we ever going to get to that book? When, how, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then even during that season, we picked up a couple of people who are still on. So right now, carrying into season five, we're covering Bleeding Edge, which is right. Pynchon's last book, his most recent book. Maybe is the better way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. There's myself. There's the aforementioned Liam. Uh, a guy named Alan, who we picked up in the Gravity's Rainbow season, who is sort of from the Philadelphia, New York City area. And um, and then there's Aug and Paola, who actually found us through Twitter. She and I kind of became friends, but she is Italian by birth, but she's lived in England for like 25 years or something oh. like that. Um, so I, I feel like we've got, oh, and my friend Michelle. Michelle and I... I can't, she's going to be so mad that I left her for last. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll re-edit this. Don't worry, Michelle. Uh, Michelle and I actually went to undergrad together. And oh, cool. when we started The Crying of Lot 49, it has a, a female protagonist. And uh-huh. at the time, the podcast was just a sausage fest. And I really, <laughs> I wanted to get a, a female voice on the show. So I reached out to Michelle and she's been on the show ever since. So that's been, uh-huh. it's been nice. And do Very you mind cool. saying where you went to undergrad and where you are in, based on now? I did my undergrad at Bowling Green State University, which is in Ohio. I majored in creative writing. Hmm. And after I graduated, because obviously no one pays you to write creatively, at least not initially, 
uh, I got a job at the library at Bowling Green State University where I still work. Um, wow. Cool. The place that I work is actually really cool. It is, um, it's called, a, it's a book depository and it basically try to picture 10,000 square feet of books and journals, all kinds of stuff. It's awesome. I seriously mm -hmm. love it every single day. That's awesome. That sounds that sounds like a nice place to spend forty hours a week. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> Surrounded by books. That's cool. Has anyone ever told you, Bo, that you that H. John Benjamin, the actor, sounds like you? Have you ever got that? Do you know who that is? I actually I don't. No one's told me that, but I also don't know who that is. Is it is it okay, the guy so who every... plays Booger in Revenge of the Nerds? Because uh, uh, I don't think so. No, I'm just um, joking around. He's the voice of Archer on the the cartoon Archer. Oh, I he's sound like Archer. In, he's also been on Human Giant and Bob's Burgers and The Simpsons. And okay, he's kind of one of those actors that's like he's not a household name or anything, but you see him around a lot, and you're like, oh yeah, I recognize that guy. Like he's on Master of None and some other some other kind of shows. Okay. Uh, Parks and Recreation. He's he's got a credit on. If you look through his IMDb. Oh really? Yeah. Anyways, every time I hear your show, I just like you come on, and I just I just picture that guy's face. That's why I wanted to, partially why I wanted to get a video of you at the start of this, so I knew that I wasn't talking to that. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know any of these shows, Dave, but I appreciate okay. your context. Parks and Recreation. I'm sure you've heard. I'm of. sure you Michael, know. Parks Michael Schur's. Michael I've Schur's. Heard, I've show. heard of it, but um, one of the episodes has a lot of Infinite Jest references. I it. completely flipped out when I was watching that episode. <laughs> I, there, it like pans across this like nameplate of a law firm, and, yeah. and I was and like after it panned across, I was like, wait a minute, and I paused it, and I re and like. All four of those names were from Infinite Jest. I was yeah. completely losing it. I was like taking pictures of the TV, <laughs> you know, and then I was paying attention to every single name that comes. Like they mm -hmm. go into a medical build, uh, medical building, and it's the CT Tavis Medical right, right. Center, and and like they they meet with this like re reproduction doctor, and and that's and her name is Doctor Van Dyne. Like every, it, I was completely losing it. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so i think i've heard before but like through twitter or something that you've read infinite jest something like six times i have it's not something which is which is I... twice as much as i've read it so you might be more qualified to host this show than i am at this point um i mean i appreciate it but i have my own show so thanks oh yeah you don't want to you don't want to jump ship <laughs> no i don't i was i was thinking about starting a jonathan franzen podcast you could jump over here you know what and then I'll, i I'll will run the, both the podcasts just so i can run your friends and podcast into the ground into the ground yeah good thank you <laughs> <laughs> during the the literary world of friggin service thanks uh, Bo. let me ask you though the um the pension in public like twitter feed uh i feel like is run by a guy named john from london um, yes. Do you have any like inter intersection with that group, or like, he, what's the story there? He, um, so, him and um, Dr. Martin Eve—they're the guys who started this Pinchon in public, not the podcast, but the sort of I don't know what to call movement—the cultural movement. movement. Let's call it. That. <laughs> um, they're the ones who started that, and so when Chris wanted to start a podcast, that was sort of where he started. So initially. Um, the guy who runs the at Pinchon in public, we, he was on some of the initial episodes. His name is actually Bill. Um, 
and we had him on in a, in a couple of early seasons. And that man loves crying of lot 49. Like no mm. one has ever loved a book before. <laughs> it's but, a great book. But he, he actually stopped doing the podcast right when we started the crying of lot 49 season. So I'm not really sure. Uh, maybe he mm. just loves it too much to really dig that deeply into it. I don't really know, but that's, that's the connection. Yeah. Okay. Well, while we're at that, um, I mean, I'm curious uh, for people who haven't listened to your show extensively, um, give us a little bit. I don't believe that there are people like that out there, but continue. Okay. <laughs> let, let Hypothetically, let's just say if there were someone who did not know your own preferences of uh, Pynchon's novels, can you give us a breakdown of where you land with Crying of Lot 49, Gravity's Rainbow, all the way up through Bleeding Edge? Right. Well, like like any responsible parent, I love all of my children the same. Um, <laughs> no, I I think I'm a, I think I'm a little bit of an anomaly in the Pinchon world because my favorite Pinchon novel is Against the Day. Um, okay, that's good to know. I I lo- I really I prefer the 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 world spanning novels much more than I like the sort of what they call the California novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my tops are, are going to be against the day gravity's rainbow and Mason and Dixon. Um, and then I do, I do like the other books quite a bit. I like inherent vice, I think a lot more than some pinch on or some pinch on fans do. I think they consider it pinch mm-hmm. on light. I hear that a lot, but I think it's a pretty solid book. And then, and then maybe the crying of lot 49, um, and then honestly, after that, like, it's been a long time since I've read Vineland, we're doing Bleeding Edge right now. And I think I liked Bleeding Edge a little bit more before we started really digging into it this season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I, I'm kind of waiting to see how I feel about that. And then, um, what have I missed? I missed something. V. V. Uh-huh. I, v is the one book I haven't read. Wow. And, have I? and I don't mean like the one book in all the world, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> it would be. Um, I had a I had a, a Shakespeare teacher who she said, she told us one time that there were three Shakespeare plays that she hadn't read yet. And she was doing wow. that on purpose so that at some point in her life, she would have some new Shakespeare to read. And this was somebody who'd been teaching Shakespeare for a decade or so and writing on Shakespeare and all this sort of stuff. And I thought that was really cool. Um, so I've, I've kind of purposefully saved V so that whenever we get to it, uh, whenever we do a season on that particular book, I'll, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be, the, be fresh. the fresh eyes on it, um, which might be weird to also be the host and do that. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I have not read that one. Um, well, it's interesting that you you said that you made a you know a difference between the kind of world building novels and the California ones, but yet you put uh, Inherent Vice pretty high in your list. Um, wh- what explains that? I like well, for starters, the main character Doc Sportello is is infinitely likable. I I don't know you know he. <laughs> He's he's basically he's basically the dude from the Big Lebowski <laughs> in, in a slightly different lens. But 
what I what I really like about that book is it does something that I think I I think there's kind of I think there's kind of two ideas going on in a broad sense in Pinchon's books. One is with these kind of longer world-spanning novels, of which I would actually count V. Um, there's this kind of like idea of an alternate history of the United States, or maybe a history of the marginalized version of the United States or the marginalized peoples of the United States. And then these, the quote unquote, California novels, I think that they're sort of the end point of that journey of of that alternate history. And so you get Vineland, which covers kind of the eighties, but also the sixties, because it does a lot of flashback stuff and you get, um, you get Crying Lot 49, which is also the 60s. And Inherent Vice takes place in like 1970, 1971. And you get you get the feeling reading that book that Pinchon himself considers that year and 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 maybe even specifically two things that I'm just gonna say these two names together and we can all decide for ourselves whether they're inextricably linked. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Manson. And Richard Nixon. Yep. Um, yep. So he he it, it's almost like those that that year, nineteen seventy, and maybe those two people and the events around them are some sort of linchpin to him, from which his alternate history maybe conflates into what we sort of currently have, or maybe maybe a better way to say it is where Bleeding Edge kind of lint. And ends up. I'm not really sure about where it goes, but for as fun as I think that book is, and I do enjoy the movie quite a bit as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's fun to read, and and there and there is a lot of depth there, despite it being quote unquote pinch on light. But I think there's a real pathos in that book, and and, and a real sense of loss for an America that he had hoped would be, but is not. And I think that's the book where he really reveals that but see to me that's a criticism of pynchon in that he's sort of stuck in that world and that in inherent vice and bleeding edge he's always looking back to that world which originally he wrote about you know with crying of lot 49 in that you know this this world of popular music in the late 1960s early 1970s he's sort of stuck in that world of of looking back to and especially with bleeding edge i felt like there was a lot of parts that felt very like out of touch with reality or out of touch with the early 2000s and the internet culture that he was trying to write about um what did you think of that early bit i i thought of that when i first read the book when it came out I think the biggest shock to me was was hearing was reading Thomas Pynchon use the word first person shooter. <laughs> That's shocking. Um, it seems right? like a That's phrase that he shocking. should have coined or like, something. You know that that got to me more than like the the Britney Spears reference that most people complain about. Um, <laughs> and I, I I see where you're coming from, but having looked at the book again and, and really more in depth since we're looking at it this season, it honestly. I don't know that he is actually writing about internet culture. I think he, I think he's actually writing about the same things he always writes about, which are in these shorter novels, which are essentially um, real estate, entropy, and following the money. 
And the other stuff, like he just he just revels in 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 popular stuff, music, TV shows, all this sort of thing. And so that's I think that's kind of what he uses to build his world a little bit. Um, and I think in this in that particular novel, he is somewhat out of touch. And I think it's worth remembering a little bit, at least that when he was writing that he was probably in his late 60s, early 70s. And he's probably more in touch with the 2000s at that time than I will be with whatever year it is when I'm in my late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> so I'm, I'm willing to cut him some slack there. But what about, um, I mean, that idea of entropy, that's a pretty broad like category. Like, yeah. how, do you see, how do you see that working from, you know, his first book all the way up to Bleeding Edge? Because, I mean, I think you could make an argument that that's something he's always been interested in every mm -hmm. book. Yeah, um, it, it is. Yeah, he And actually, it, it predates his first book. He has a short story in his collection, uh, Slow Learner, and the short story itself is called Entropy. And that seems to be where his fascination with this really starts. And mm -hmm. in The Crying of Lot 49, there's actually, he actually brings in a, a Maxwell's Demon, which is this whole thought experiment within the world of thermodynamics and all sorts of the idea of entropy. And I, I feel like after, you know, six years of dealing, of dealing with this pinch on podcast, I feel like I might understand entropy better than any like non-science person <laughs> ever. And, and I, and I think it's great. <laughs> is it useful? The leading humanities scholar on, uh, oh, on the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think entropy is essentially – so take – I like to talk about entropy in terms of a Rubik's Cube. If you take a Rubik's Cube and you mess it all up, it has, it has a low state of entropy. When you start to solve it, you're actually increasing the entropy of the Rubik's Cube. And when you're done, the, the Rubik's Cube is not itself an entropic system really because all six sides are different colors – but it's, it has a high degree of entropy. We tend to equate entropy with chaos, and that's not really true. In fact, entropy is order. The more, the more dissimilar things are, the less entropic they are. And so when you think about that in terms of like literary themes, and especially Pinchon's themes, it, when you look at um, when you look at a land or, or, or an area that is has not been developed at all, that has a very low entropy. Once you start building streets, and once you start building those streets in nice little squares, you know that. And I always get like the weeds theme song stuck in my head right here. Um, <laughs> little boxes. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and then you, you get people driving on those and they all have very similar cars and the people dress the same and they have the same interests. Like that's a high degree of entropy. And I think that is essentially what Pinchon's writing and career is trying to go against. I think he's actively showing the danger of cultural entropy and and highlighting the people who either have chosen not to be subsumed by that or otherwise have not been through usually some other paranoid means or whatatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. I was going to say, in terms of themes that run throughout all his work, paranoia is pretty high up there as yeah, well. Yeah, it sure is. 
<laughs> I mean, that's fascinating what you're saying about entropy. Uh, I mean, as it relates to the United States or the political systems of the United States. I mean, certainly that land as a sort of unproven state in Mason and Dixon is there. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do you see his interest in like the political systems? Uh, and, you know, what what do you think of, you know, the, proving that out of where we are now? Pinchon's a little bit weird because he actually he it seems like he would go into politics a lot more than he does. The only thing I can say about his politics for certain is that he has no love for Richard Nixon. Um, beyond <laughs> that, enough. yeah, beyond that, I'm I'm not really sure. Um, I I think I think I I, I think maybe a, a way to look at it is that our our sort of current climate where we have two very polarized political parties uh-huh. that in itself is highly entropic. I mean, sure, there are two parties and they have very different views, but basically no one can get elected unless they share those views. There's not a whole lot of room for middle of the road in American politics anymore. Uh-huh. And I think that's exactly the warning that it, to the degree, I'm not sure that Pynchon would really step in and give us a warning, but if there is one politically in his books, I think that's the warning. Well, that's interesting in that you said earlier your favorite book of his was Against the Day. And mm-hmm. how do you see that fitting in with a kind of warning about, I don't know, American culture or politics? Against the Day is interesting because it, it takes place between about 1893 and a little bit after World War One. And it, it, it concerns itself greatly with the advent of electricity. And, you know, another way to look at electricity is light. And the characters in that book, especially the book starts out with the, this group called the Chums of Chance. And I just absolutely love I them. Love the, I love the Chums of Chance. Too. Uh, I, would, I would sign up in a heartbeat. <laughs> Even You're if an I, honorary chum of chance. I, right I would be. Um, I, I think I would join the Money Stealers Club. That'd be my first priority. <laughs> um, but they they undergo, the characters in, of the Chums of Champs un, under, undergo a change somewhere, you know, off the screen, if you will. And, the, you know, there's a point where they stop being the sort of fun-loving adventure boys that we met and they become somehow darker and it's i don't i don't always know what to make of that part of me wishes that we could have seen what happened but then again that's that's one of pinchon's things is he'll write about things happening around these big events but you never really see the like in gravity's rainbow we never really see world war 2 at all right yeah yeah you know and so on the other you know so in that sense it it makes it makes sense there. Now, what is he doing with what's his warning there in that particular book politically? I'm not really sure. I know, I mean, he goes in quite a bit about money and, and, you know, one of the, one of the big pension bad guys, Scarsdale vibe is obviously the sort of the, the character we're supposed to be really, really warned about, but I don't know that the book really deals with, politics all that much the closest thing is so 
the other thing that the book about is this sort of this long drawn out revenge story. And I'm also a sucker for any revenge story. <laughs> Big Tarantino fan. Then? <laughs> uh, I, I, I am. And I'm not, I like his stories. Yeah, sure. I wish. Well, I don't want to get into the, we're not on the sure. Tarantino <laughs> podcast. Um, but yeah, in general, I, I really, so, so this revenge story is really about, it's, it's actually the sort of sub story about like unions versus the non-unionized and the idea of anarchy versus non-anarchy, which probably isn't really a term. Um, and that, <laughs> that probably comes as, that's probably a pretty close analog for politics there, because in that particular book, the unions are also employing people who are doing very illegal things. They're employing people to kill people who are against the unions and things like that. And I think that's a pretty solid analog for how a lot of governments have been run and sometimes still are run. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I said a whole lot without really answering your question. No, so. <laughs> no. I think that, you know, it just like uh, any other pension book, it leads me to another question. Sure. Um, which is, uh, you know, at what point did you read Wallace and what was the first like, uh, David Foster Wallace work that you read? Well, the first David Foster Wallace book I read was actually infinite jest. Uh-huh. That's um, a good choice. Well, I had, I had, I had two friends and I, they, had, I had only two friends, by the way, I, I never had more <laughs> than two friends. Um, <laughs> These two friends amongst the many friends that I have, um, I I think it was on Facebook or something. No, it couldn't have been because it was like 2006. But they challenged each other to read Infinite Jest and to see who finished it first. And so I was like, Shh, whatever, I'll be in on that. And I, I, like, I vaguely knew the name David Foster Wallace, but I knew nothing about this book. So I requested it from the library where I work. And then one day I walked by the shelf where my books was and I saw this huge fat book on the shelf. And I was like, what did I order? Damn it. (laughs) Right. And I had no idea. Um, And so I, I started it. I got about a hundred pages into it, had no idea what was going on and stopped reading the book. I didn't hate it. I just had no clue what was going on. Yeah. In 2007, no, sorry. In 2008, I decided I was going to read all of the hard books on my shelves that I had been putting off. So like in one year, I read like Atlas Shrugged and Gravity's Rainbow and like House of Leaves. I, like I read like 10 books that year total. Right. <laughs> um, and and I somewhere at the beginning of the summer, I picked up Infinite Jest and I fell in love with it really it took me until I got to the section on Kate Gompart. And uh, that's what that's what really sold me on the book. Wow. Um, I wow, we don't we don't hear that that often because that's fairly early on in the book. I think mm-hmm. you know in the first hundred pages maybe. It is. I yeah, you know so. I just said that I read like a hundred pages. I had to have read way less than that because. <laughs> I've got it open to this section right now and it's on page like 70 or something like that. Yeah. So it's fairly early on. I mean, uh, see, I compare that when other people try to read the book and say, Oh, I couldn't get into it. I say, how far did you go? 
And, uh, you know, to me, if they don't make it to Eschaton, which is like page 320 something, three something yeah. um, that to me is like, if you have a 300 page book, you know, you got to give it at least, I don't know, 90 pages in. Yeah. Right. And that's, so you got to scale like, that proportionally. Yeah. yeah. That's like 90 pages for infinite justice, like Eschaton. If you're not hooked by then, you're probably not going to be. <sighs> right. Right. Yeah. And I, I can agree with that. Um, and so I got to that section and I was I was absolutely hooked be and it's it's the thing that I feel like a lot of people don't want to talk about with understandable reasons but he I knew from reading that that he got depression better than anyone who's trying to talk about depression depression in, in the literary world right now and mm-hmm. um, it just so happened that obviously that that was the year that he died and it also yeah. just so happened that he killed himself on my birthday. Um, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I mean, obviously, I don't take that personally, right? But it was... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure those things aren't linked. No, not at all. Pensions paranoia might have you uh, think otherwise. I'm sure it does. Yeah, there's no getting away from that. But yeah, so, you know, I'd started reading the book and I was really hooked on it. And really what hooked me was this this business with depression there's, and I don't know how much people realize this. There's a lot of suicide in this book. A lot. Yep. Um, Like I think there's like the number of characters who are left-handed is slightly more than the number of people who eliminate their own maps. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I kept noticing it. I kept noticing it. And I was like, wow, this is a guy who, and I knew nothing about Wallace. I was just, this is a guy who I really hope has gotten some help. And then on my yeah. birthday, a friend of mine texts me and says, there's some news about David Foster Wallace. And I, I didn't even have to read the news. I knew what it was just from reading this book. Um, it's yeah, it's funny because I, I didn't know. Like, I got a ton of people texting me that night. And um, I didn't know. And, like, I just thought he was a really good writer. And, you know, he went to extreme lengths to sort of lie about AA, which is supposed to be anonymous. Right. Um, And he went to extreme lengths to sort of downplay his own personal history as it related to his writing. Um, And I actually thought he was extremely well adjusted and that he was a tenured professor who had gotten a good job and moved across the country to California. Mm and so to me, the the ability for him to write about depression or mental illness was just indicative of his ability to write about anything very well. Um, There's and, something... And it, it's only in retrospect that I think you're correct, that it's like, no, that's actually quite unique. There's something that, that Kate Gompert says. I'm going to read it because this is what got me. The last thing... The last thing more I'd want is hurt. I just didn't want to feel this way anymore. I don't, I didn't believe this feeling would ever go away. I don't, I still don't. I'd rather feel nothing than this. And that was when I knew that this was somebody who struggled with depression and suicide. A lot of people don't understand that component that, I mean, there, and and Kate Gomper says, there are plenty of people who, try to commit suicide because they want to hurt themselves. But there are people who just want to stop feeling whatever it is that they're feeling. And I knew that he got it. And I didn't. And again, at the time of his death, I still, I very much believe that 
the that the the book and the author are completely separate people that are separate entities. I try not to let knowledge of the author influence how I read a book. So I'm in the middle of this book. I did not look anything up about him whatsoever. So I didn't know that he was a tenured professor, all that sort of stuff. Um, I might have had the same reaction as you at that point, but I knew that at least when he was writing this book, he had gone through some shit. I knew that. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that's really interesting to me in that, um, you know, you expect a, a fiction writer to be able to project themselves into a fictional world and to write about something that is outside of their experience. You, yeah, but that that old dictum, write what you know. I mean, the truth is that I think, I think the the maybe a better way to put that is you know what you write, and I think it is kind of kind of a fiction writer's job to to sell you on knowing these things that you don't know. And he's good at that too. Like that whole business in um, The Pale King about getting a new uh, social security number when you start working for the IRS. Like I was totally sold on that. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I was putting that up as like a trivia question for students who work for me and things like he totally got me on that one. And, and, and he is good at that. Um, But he's also, he's also really good at, trying to hide himself by putting himself into his fiction in ways that you're not going to pick up on or obs- or or are very very obscure which even saying that out loud makes me realize that is such a Wallace thing to do it really is <laughs> right to to put yourself out there but hide at the same time you know mm-hmm. and yeah and there's i mean yeah, it's, that's like the mail fraud uh conundrum in that class right like Right. How does the kleptomaniac, who's also a agoraphobic, fulfill both of their tendencies? And then right. one of the kids writes mail fraud. Mail fraud, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and he, I don't know that that just seemed to be his his stock in trade. And I just felt like I felt like he had attended AA meetings, either for real or for research. And I'm still not really sure which is the truth there but i knew from from reading for real okay um i had knew i knew from reading that that he had dealt with depression and then later and then after i read this book um is it in i think it's in brief interviews with hideous men he has that whole story on the depressed person uh-huh. yeah. yeah yeah like that that story also is very 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 true um it's a deep dive i I gotta say when that when that story first came out um i couldn't read it yeah i don't like it very much like i couldn't read it like it it was actually painful to read and i was like why would anyone want (laughs) it it was one of the few things where i had read where i felt like i understood why someone would need to write this but not why someone would need to read this Yeah. <laughs> like the narrator's so unlikable that you just like loathe them the entire the entire time you're reading it. It's right. Very painful. Yeah. It it is, but to me and I and I don't really like the story and it is very hard to read, but to me the 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 depth of that story is the is the part where the narrator consistently refers to herself as the depressed person. Yeah. That sort of yeah. like disassociation of self with this category of being is so sad to me. Um, Mm. And that, 
to me, that's where the story lands. Well, and then it came out later that that story was written, you know, about Elizabeth Wurzel or his, you know, girlfriend. Right. And that, and that was sort of hurtful and that, sure, you know, if it's, if it's mocking someone or making fun of someone, like, I just didn't buy that. Like, I don't think you could write a story that long and extensive without feeling it yourself. Agreed. Uh, I mean, it was very much a cop-out to say, oh, the depressed person is someone else. It's like, that has to be you. That has mm, to be mm-hmm. some lived experience in yeah, some like way. Yeah, like the voice is so embodied that right. it would be hard to, yeah. And, and again, that's that's Wallace's stock and trade, to, to put himself out there but hide behind something. That's what he does. But if you could back up for just a second, sure. I'm not clear on your own timeline about like, what is your own sort of background? What is your reading history? Give us like, you know, the thing that made you want to be a reader and like, what did you discover first, et cetera, et cetera. The, I don't really know what made me want to be a reader. I just know I've always read books. I honestly, hmm. you know, even going back to when I was a kid, like, you know, like one of my former bosses, she was telling me she didn't really read all that much until she was out of college. And I was like, what's wrong with you? Um <laughs> You know, like that that thing that Hal says, like, I do things like get in a taxi and say to the library and step on it. Like where I grew up, there weren't taxis, but like my parents literally used a trip to the library as incentive to get me to do my chores when I was a kid. I've always read. I have always gravitated to the fattest book on the shelf. Um, mm-hmm. The first sort of like grown up book that I read was Stephen King's It. I was in like wow. sixth grade, and that probably was too young to read that book. <laughs> Where were your parents, Bo? My parents, you know what? Everybody's parents has their faults. The one thing I will never fault my parents on is that they never stop me from reading anything, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like that, that uh, in your episode, the final episode, t- where you guys were talking about Gravity's Rainbow the, you're talking about the Pulitzer Prize not being awarded that year in 1974, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the obscenity of the book, you know, was too much for for the committee, especially the stuff with uh, was it Sergeant Butters or Colonel Butters. Uh, Brigadier Pudding, but pudding, yeah, Pudding, yeah, what I think, about it. yeah, you're close. So uh, a pretty apt name for the scene, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the idea of like this is too obscene for for kids to read. Well, where like where are their parents? That's a funny <laughs> comment. <laughs> but if your kid's reading Gravity's Rainbow, like, congrats, you know. Yeah. You know, I have a sixth grader child living in my home, and my son this year wanted to buy Stephen King's It. Oh and yeah. I, and I bought it for him. Good. Uh-huh. And uh, and I was like, you know, knock yourself out. You want to go read whatever you want to read, <laughs> I will gladly encourage it. And it's like whatever um, faults my parents had, <laughs> they did not prohibit me from reading anything on my dad's shelf. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember my dad had a lot of um, Lawrence Sanders books. Uh, I don't know if either of you have read Lawrence Sanders, but I absolutely love him to this day. He was a crime writer, mystery writer that you could get from like Book of the Month Club, but he was phenomenal. And, you know, my dad absolutely loved these books. And he had a bunch of like the first deadly sin, the second deadly sin, the third (laughs) deadly sin, the fourth deadly sin, the fifth deadly sin, the sixth deadly sin. And I was like, when's it going to end, Matt? I was like, I actually want to know what 
every deadly sin is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but he, he, you know, he didn't. If I was picking up a book, he would not tell me, "Oh, that's inappropriate." He would let me read right. whatever. So I, right? I think I think that's a great entry point to being a lifelong reader. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, and times have obviously changed now, and that there's a lot more of like. Um, graphic novels available than there were when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, True. And honestly, like some of the young adult literature out there now deals with things that are way heavier than the young, young adult stuff that existed when I was a kid. Um, yeah. You know, like I, I think about like, like John Green stuff, like he, he's really diving yeah. into some pretty deep things. Like in the one mm-hmm. book, you know, the, two main characters have cancer and his most recent book, he's dealing with, you know, OCD. Like I, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, I was reading like Alfred Hitchcock and the three investigators. Like, and I love those books. I still love those books, but like they didn't have real problems. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess also like books like Lord of the Flies and 1984 and Brave New World Mm -hmm. and the great Gatsby kind of like standard American, you know, canonized, you know literature that kids read in high school i guess there's like some of that stuff is heavy as well but in a different kind of way i guess like right yeah and those books are also like they're they're presented differently like they're not yeah when you're giving them in school they're not presented as young adult literature like here are some books that you're probably going to hate but we're going to test you on them (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) yeah yeah that's true well and that that point about you know, that they don't really have adult concerns in some way. It reminds me of a few things that I really loved, which were Trixie Belden books. I absolutely loved this character called Trixie Belden, who apparently didn't even have to go to school. She didn't do anything except for solve mysteries. What a life. Um, uh, and <laughs> it was like, the, you know, that's sort of like Scooby-Doo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just solve mysteries. I don't know. Travel around, have adventures. Um but there was also like some adult novels that I discovered later in life where I felt like I read the book and realized the characters didn't really have a job or uh, to have to worry about anything beyond their immediate story. Yeah. Um, and I, a great example of that is uh, Iris Murdoch, A Severed Head which if no one's ever read that book, you absolutely should. It's a phenomenal book. Hmm. But after I read the book, I was like, mm, yeah, these are really rich people who don't have a lot of concerns um, oh. outside of like, you know, relationships, period. Isn't that just how it is for rich people? I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. I would hope so. I, I really like, have no idea. What more money, more problems, hmm. though? Uh, and it's, I don't want to get into it, but like it actually brings up a good question is that like, to me, every time, like when bleeding edge came out, um, all I could think about was like, there's this guy, Thomas Pynchon somewhere in New York, just like writing these stories. Like, Uh what is he actually worried about? What does he care about? You know, what, what did you think when that book came out? I guess 2009, uh, 2013. Oh, wow. I'm way off. 2013. Mm. Um, I read it right when it came out and I I didn't pick up on this initially, but covering it now, I I think I understand what that book is really about. He he has lived in New York for a good part of his life to this point. And this book is really 
a love letter to the Big Apple. That's what he's doing with this book. Mm. And he's doing that also at a, at a time of obviously massive transition in all kinds of ways. You know, forget about 9-11 for a minute, but this is also just after the dot-com bubble burst. There, this is right at the beginning of, you know, I mean, the internet existed in, in 2000, 2001, but it's, it wasn't what it is today. We wouldn't be able to record any of this on the internet of 2000, 2001, right? Um, nope. So, so yeah. We he, can barely do it now, right, Skype? <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't. This, it, all right. It's like when you go to a restaurant, you don't piss off the cook until you get your food. You don't piss off Skype until you finish the recording. Oh, God. That's, like, that's kind of a rule that we have on our show. Um, that's, that's good. So, yeah, that, I think that's honestly what this book is about. I think in a way like 9-11 happened and not really, I don't think it's the event itself. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that affected him a great deal. But everything that's happened since the fallout, uh, politically, culturally, all kinds of things, I think that affected him very deeply. And he sort of then looked back on the city that he very much loves and has a lot of affection for and wanted to talk about this event that changed not only the city, but everything and really the world beyond it. Um, and I think that's really what he's doing with this book. Well, and does that make you think like, you know, how many books does he have left? Right. Is it 80 years old? I was it 81, 82. Yeah. Um, Are him and Delillo the same age. Must be within a year or two. Yeah, they've got to be close. Um, I honestly don't expect another Thomas Pynchon book. I expect maybe one after he dies. So you know that's been like sitting in a closet somewhere. I don't think I don't think we'll see the like collections that we saw come out after after Wallace died. Um, I I I do actually think that Bleeding Edge might be the last thing that we hear from him. I don't like that idea, but at the same time, I'm a little bit glad to know that at some point our podcast will end. <laughs> Unlike Ours your podcast, will. yeah, you, you're going to keep never digging up people forever, and that's yeah. We have a bit of a difference of format, I guess, in that way that you yeah. just do a deep dive into a book, and you it's kind of like a book club, right? Know, fly on the wall type thing. Yeah, yeah. We, we call ourselves the most sadistic, the world's most sadistic book club. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that might be true, actually. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't really expect to see another book. At the same time, I I literally have notes at the ready, so that we can record an episode on the fly when we hear of his passing. Hmm, wow. wow. Um. I mean, obviously, we did not have that with Wallace, right? Um, and it was very uh, shocking to hear of his death. Uh, at the time and uh, do you know uh, like what is the the sort of lowdown on like what his his writing has been over the past 10 years or so I mean is that I, I haven't really been in touch with like are you on the pension email list at all like the what is the serve? chatter on there yeah yeah um, I'm not I'm not on a pension email list I'm never really sure sometimes how academically oriented these lists are. And I'm perhaps this is appropriate for the guy running a pinch on podcast, but I'm suspicious of academia. 
Um, so I, I kind of stay away from things that I think might be in that vein. Um, oh, fair enough. I mean, I think that's fair enough. Um, I will tell you that, you know, my experience with the Wallace uh, email list is that it is a direct spinoff of the pension email list. <laughs> uh Boy, they're like, all right, get your own list, guys. It's like symbolic somehow or metaphorical mm-hmm. in some way that mm-hmm. I can't quite put my finger on. Interesting. Well, <laughs> it, it is in that, um, I, you know, and I have a pretty well-documented theory that I have not completely published yet that whenever the Internet was first really born with ARPANET in mm-hmm. the 1970s, um, it sort of coincided with the rise of Gravity's Rainbow and the publication of Gravity's Rainbow and that um, the internet was sort of invented to talk about books, movies, music, these sorts of things, and that the first real book discussed on the internet was Gravity's Rainbow. Hmm. I, I Obviously, I like that theory quite a bit. <laughs> the only thing I would add to it is that I think the the internet was also invented to exchange pornography. Oh, no doubt. (laughs) And the scientists who invented it, um, you know, I think that they first had opinions about movies and they second of all wanted to share dirty pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, And then third, they also wanted to talk about Star Trek. Uh, Mm. And there's a lot (laughs) of talk about Star Trek in the 1970s internet um, but there's also like the same scientists, you know, who are the all PhDs who are putting these nodes of ARPANET together were talking about Gravity's Rainbow. Um, and, you know, that's the type of book that took a couple of years to digest. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of the reason why it didn't, um, you know, immediately gain upon publication the sort of success that some other books did. I wouldn't disagree with that. And I I think you can say basically the same thing about Infinite Jest. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and right now I I feel the same sense of uh, disregard with the Knausgaard books. And Mm -hmm. that your book six just came out and it's like a huge, huge book. And there's no way a book reviewer can give it proper credit and whatever kind of deadline that they've got. Like it's Mm. like 1200 page novel. Um, And it just makes a reviewer's life hell. Right. 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 So have you finished it yet, Matt? No, no. And I'm in no rush to finish it because once I finish that one, that's it for. Oh, is it the last one? Okay. Okay. Um, So, I mean, in 1974, you did have a number of scientists who were able to send email so, I mean, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm just going to pretend like we're all the same age. <laughs> but like, You know how old uh, I am, Matt Booker. I, I sent you know my first email in about 1989, 1990, mm. and that was over uh, a dial-up modem with a BBS. And, you know, at that point, there were, there were 10 years, 20 years ahead of me of people who were having, you know, dial-up modems and communicating via specific phone numbers or on, uh, you know, news groups. Mm-hmm. 
that I had no sense of. And I really think that the first book that they seriously discussed, the way that we discuss Infinite Jest, they were discussing in a very primitive form in 1974, 1975, 1976. Hmm. Um, uh, what's Gravity's Rainbow? I, I, I wish I'd have heard this theory before we started the Gravity's Rainbow season. <laughs> I, I maybe we'll try to go back oh, through the Wayback Machine some... and dig those up. See what they were well, saying. I'll send you. I'll send you my documentation later. I have some. I have some citations on this. Okay, oh, it's cool. not just total bullshit. But um, uh, there's uh, several Wallace scholars, as you can imagine, who are also pension scholars, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of overlap here with this group of people mm-hmm. that we've talked about. One of whom is our buddy Jeff, Jeff Sievers. Sievers. Jeff Sievers, absolutely. Um, and you know he's written a lot about the um, the sort of development of pension studies. So, like you said earlier, you're not an academic, and yet you work at a university. So, do you want to speak to that a little bit more and just explain like how that works out? Um, yeah, I, I. It's not that I don't I don't value academia. I do, and I value education. I value higher education. Um, I, any if you want to go learn something, go learn something. I, I'm absolutely for it. My problem with academia when it comes to literature studies and maybe the humanities in general is that I feel like it has essentially become, at best, a symbiote of the publishing industry. But I really think it's more like a parasite of the publishing industry. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 I took some levels at, or I took some classes at the graduate level and I very quickly realized that basically becoming a professor meant writing papers, publishing papers, writing books, mm-hmm. publishing books. And I, and I respect the people who do that. It's nothing against that, but I don't feel like the purpose of academia should be that it's, that the that the professors within it are there to serve the publishing industry. I don't really give two shits if companies like Elsevier survive. I mean, I work for a library, and I wish EBSCO would go away. Mm. I mean, they provide a lot of really really great content, but on the other side of that, all that great, all those databases that you're getting access to, all these articles. You have no idea the stuff that EBSCO is not giving you. You don't even see how they are preferencing their own stuff over other articles. And I see this stuff because I work at a library. I know what's going on in these in these deals. And it's all about making sure that these publishers get paid. And I feel like mm. in a lot to a large degree, that's what academia is. So I'm a little maybe not, but also let me throw out the usual caveat here. I'm a Pinchon fan, and I'm <laughs> I'm given say. to paranoia and conspiracy <laughs> theories. So there's that. Well, no doubt. And in fact, I used to work for Elsevier, so um, <laughs> f- th- throw them throw them in the garbage heap Under of history. Bus. That's fine. <laughs> um, I'm I'm also interested in like what other um, you know there are a lot of other writers that get 
uh, looped in with pension. And like one reason why I think the Wallace list sprung up is that, you know, pension was only coming out with a book every 10 years or so. And in that 10 year gap, there was a, a lot of interest of like, well, what other writers are kind of like him, you know, right. who's the heir to the throne. And like, you know, Wallace was in that conversation. And mm-hmm. so there would be a lot of discussion about like, you know, what's this book about? Is this book the real deal? And there's still that, that sort of question of like, you know, who's the heir to the throne, right? Mm-hmm. Of pension. And like, I'm curious what you think of, um, you know, some of the other people who have been compared to him. Yeah. I, I think, I think Wallace had a pretty decent shot, especially, especially once he realized that being a writer wasn't about showing the reader that he's smarter than the reader is. He, he got over that after, um, girl with curious hair and that's great and i i think he had a really really decent shot um beyond you know beyond that but the other thing is that wallace he took whether he wants to admit it or not he took some of the things that pinchon worked with and and i and i still don't really understand how he did it but he took a lot of these same big ideas and he imbued them with a lot of empathy, and I don't, I don't get it entirely. I, one of Pinchon's biggest criticisms is that his characters feel flat, and I'm back and forth on that one. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, but I will say that I don't know that I feel like the author has a lot of sympathy for his characters here and there. Now, it's not like Franzen who has outright hatred for most of his characters. But I, I don't know that he really feels for them, but I feel that Wallace did. And, and, and so what I'm, what I'm interested in are some of the, some of the readers and, and people always cite, but I think Dave Eggers is a really good example of someone who picked up on that part of it. Um, what I, what I really want to see is, is someone pick up on the whole thing. I, you know, personally, I want that sort of, I call it high literary what the fuckness. Like that's how I describe Pinchon, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. I want to see that combined with that that deep em- empathy, and I haven't really seen that since Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, now that being said, I don't know that I read a lot of very new stuff. I uh, in one of your more recent episodes, um, somebody mentioned um, a tale for the time being. Mm-hmm. And I and I picked that up. I'm about Ruth Ozeki. Yeah, Ruth Ozeki. And uh, yeah, I just picked that up too. I haven't started yet. Though. Yeah, I'm about a quarter of the way through it. it. It's pretty good. I'm curious to see where it goes. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I I feel like that book has a lot of potential, and I feel like you know, see, you know, she's got a lot of other books out there. So we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I just think it's interesting that you know the people who are interested in these authors, you know, often it turns out what they're interested in are a series of traits or qualities or things they admire about the writer that do translate to other writers. Uh, And earlier on, like you mentioned, House of Leaves, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and people who have read Pynchon have often read like Richard Farina, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people who have read Wallace have often read, you know, 
other writers that, you know, it might be um, Mark Lehner, it might be Franzen, it might be um, Costello, whoever they, they sort of get recommended, oh, you like this rather than that. Um, and, you know, I'm curious what you think about, uh, you know, how that's evolved in your own reading. Like, what did you come to first or what kind of traits did you look for? I, I realized some time ago that the thing that I look for the most is, I, I think, you know, it's often called like maximalism. But I don't, yeah. I don't really care if every detail doesn't lead me somewhere. I'm really not interested in like, like I love obviously beautiful language and Wallace is great at that. And he's so good at this beautiful language right next to, you know, this slang and all, you know, I don't know how he mm -hmm. does that either. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, I am not interested in like every little thing coming to some nice little tidy conclusion. I'm not interested in like everything that's mentioned is mentioned for a reason. I'm okay with just ridiculous levels of detail that are absolutely meaningless or, or at least pointless. Um, and, and so like that has very, that those two things, language and just give me lots of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's what I'm interested in most. And I've noticed that I, that I, at least that second part, I do that in, in like, I play a lot of video games. That's kind of my thing. Cause video games, in my opinion, are better for your brain than television. But I thought you were going to say books. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll never say that. Um, but I, I like I like video games that are just absolutely huge and just let me explore. I love a novel that is so big that you have no choice but to take it at your own pace. Right. You know. So would you compare like Gravity's Rainbow with something like the games in the Fallout series where you're just kind of like wandering this expansive yeah post-apocalyptic kind of wasteland and yeah i can't would. trust anything or anybody or yet and, and and there's there's another game um it's called witness and or mm -hmm. maybe the yeah. witness and the witness what i like about that game is it it does not give you any instructions whatsoever you know, you have no idea. You're just on this place. You have to solve these puzzles. You have no idea why. You have no right. idea if this is going anywhere. And that's how Gravity's Rainbow feels. Yeah, and, it does. And that's how at least, let's say, maybe the first 200 pages of Infinite Jest feels too. You're getting, mm -hmm. you're getting these bits of information from obviously very different characters. You know nothing about them. Some of them are written in dialectically and badly at that. Mm -hmm. But you just thrown all this stuff, and 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 the thing about Infinite Justice, you don't even you, you're getting these years like you have no idea what year of Glad means. Yeah, you know, is, are we talking about the trash bag company, or is everyone just happy that year? Like, what does that even mean? Um, and so that you know, it feels that way too, where he's just throwing all this stuff to you, and you've got to have a little bit of faith in the author and in the book to say. At some point, this is going to coalesce in my head, if nowhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and that, like, that's always like I've I maybe I shouldn't admit this. I don't know, but like I've never finished Joyce's Ulysses. I always I've never even tried to start Joyce's Ulysses. So you're, <laughs> you're in better shape than I. <laughs> it's uh, it, there's some things in it that are some passages in it that are absolutely beautiful, but that book fails to coalesce in my head at all like i know what it's mm -hmm. about i know what happens and all that stuff 
but all these things and all these different styles never come together in any way. And yeah. and you you nailed it earlier. Like to me, infinite jest comes together with the the eschaton section. Like that's what makes that book. And I agree with you. If you mm-hmm. don't at least get to there, you didn't really give the book a try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And that that sort of open world, um, you know, rambling and, you know, DeLillo has underworld. I'm thinking of like William T. Volman, who has a lot of really fat novels. Um, And, you know, there's Gaddis and Gas and all, all of these, you know, anyone who can sort of construct their own world and sort of build a world that you can I don't know, skip around in, in a bit. Yeah. Uh, and you, you know, there are people who read, uh, infinite jest and don't read the end notes. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're missing out, but they're playing in a way like I would compare almost to like a video game that you're comparing like an open world game where they're like, they're choosing a sort of limitation that's available to them. Right. And it's (laughs) like, it's like, fair enough. You know, there, there are limitations that you can, impose upon yourself right and a lot of other reading experiences don't offer that you know they're just so linear that Uh you have to read like this happens then this happens and you know i think uh that's part of what appealed to people who had read pension and then picked up uh infinite jest um Mm. uh, have you read at all of the pale king yeah i've read that a couple times Okay, yeah. So I think the Pale King has a similar kind of non-linearity to it. Well, it sure does. That appeals to people who like, you know, fragmentation of reality or something where I would say, you know, you can sort of dip in and dip out of it or find a chunk that relates to you. And that honestly, like not all of, you know, Pynchon or Wallace is genius to me. That, that There's bits of it that are hit or miss. Sure. And and some of it like relates to me extensively well. Like you brought up with Wallace, the um, the depression stuff. He does that very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on our last episode, I think we talked about some stuff he doesn't do well. Um, so I I think you're right on. Um, I'm also just like while we have you, like talk about some other books man like i was super curious about like uh mason and dixon like i go back to that book a lot i've never read that one uh it's fantastic but it's written in a sort of obsolete vernacular yeah i've heard of it yeah and it you know he 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 capitalizes all the nouns like they did back then and things like that okay um and it's one of those things that when it's like it's like if you come across a good story or a good book that's written in second person like at first that's all you can notice but if it's good you stop noticing that and that you know mason and dixon does that i honestly i've only read mason and dixon once i can't really talk about it all that well um i know and you reading Pynchon a lot of times you finish the book and you're like, wow, that was good. Or wow, that was mediocre or whatever, but what just happened? And there's like yeah. two little details that you always remember. And the, really the only things I recall from Mason and Dixon with any real sense are the learned English dog and yep. this like group of native Americans who show up doing the, the, the sign that Spock always does. And, and they say, live long and prosper. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's that's really of everything that happened in that book. That's what I remember. 
Um, so I, I honestly can't talk about that book all that much. I'm looking forward to whenever we get to that in the, in the podcast, um, so that I could re-experience the book. Well, I, and I'm, I'm just throwing it out really as yeah, yeah. an example of something that is, um, you know, extensive and it's complex and it sort of exists in its own little world. Uh, and that, you know, if you do relate to it and if it does make sense to you, it's more than just like a weekend of reading. Like it's like, it's like months or a year of, of trying to process and like, yeah, your well, podcast is kind of that way. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was about to say, it takes a long time to process. And then sometimes you create a podcast so that you can keep doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I, you know, there's, there's a handful of books that I just, I really love. I love them. I have the physical copies I have digital copies and I have audio copies so that I can have these books with me all the time. And they are The Odyssey, Infinite Jest, Against the Day, and Gravity's Rainbow. Uh-huh. Wow. And and I and I have those books with me all the time. And I like and the the guy who reads um Against the Day is astounding. He oh yeah he reads it so well his 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 name is Dick Hill and I've always said that like if I go into audiobook production my name's going to be Cock Knoll um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean I'm kind of picking on his name but he is so good uh-huh. and I like that book I'm just like I almost constantly have that on a loop even though the loop takes like a year to get through whatever right um, yeah. yeah I and that's there are just there are just things there are things that I think about literally every single day that I got from a book like mm-hmm. Tom Robbins. I'm a I'm a big fan of Tom Robbins oh, because yeah. his books are insane. He's fun. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and he, like the first time I saw one of his books, it was Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climates, and I was like, who makes that the title <laughs> of a book like that? That's just not a thing, and that's the whole reason I picked up that book. Um, right. You know, and I, you know, I've read all of his books, most of them repeatedly, and there's just, sorry, you also, you get to have my neighbor's dog on your podcast now too. You're you're Um, fine. (laughs) We've had dump trucks, we've had helicopters. Oh, I know. We've had so many. Dogs welcome. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so like, yeah, Tom Robbins, I read a lot of, I read a lot of Jack Kerouac, um, especially... Like I like On the Road pretty well, but the books that come after that, especially like Desolation Angels, I think is really good. Um, Tristessa is really, really good. Also, like I had a girlfriend one time who told me that I should say she accused me of only liking <laughs> only liking stuff that sucks. And by that she meant <laughs> by that she really meant stuff that's sad. And for some reason, like I just I'm drawn to things that are sad as opposed to things that are happy. This um, is everyone I've ever known has accused me of this. So keep okay. Going. So we're, we're, despite our podcast feud, we're going to get along just fine. Um, I had, I had a group of students tell me once I framed the English 11 course as like, you know, Wallace's McCaffrey interview where he talks about good literature, you know, it's 51% pain, 49% pleasure. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the course, they accused me of, that the course was like 99% pain and 1% pleasure of the stuff that we read. Then you did a good job. Then I did a good job. You did. I'll take it. You did. Thanks. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I there's a lot of. I also like a lot of the, like the old class, like old epic literature. Like I mentioned, the Odyssey. I uh-huh. love Beowulf. I think Beowulf is amazing. Huh. Um, and again, like these are, and that's just the thing with me. I just really like these big, expansive things that leave no stone unturned. You know, uh-huh. that's that seems to be what I'm interested in now. As I mentioned, I. I did my undergrad in creative writing. It's not such a good thing for a person who wants to write because then you sure. just <laughs> you just never stop writing, you know. But whatever, mm-hmm. we can move past that. So, <laughs> have you read the Mystery Dot Doc? I have. Yeah. I have not. Matthew McIntosh. I just finished that last month. You'd probably really dig it. All it's right. a fast read. Like it's a sixteen hundred page book, but a lot of the page space is like photos or just white white page like oh okay it's a very quick read um but you'd probably dig it for a lot of those reasons all right mentioned i'll make a note of that oh god i mean rabbit rabbit hole mad or oh god i mean isn't this the (laughs) curse of liking long novels as someone's always like have you read this other one that you haven't read nope (laughs) (laughs) nope i haven't read it well, try uh, try working at a library where you're literally seeing these things uh-huh. come and go every day. And, you know, like I pick up a book and it almost breaks my wrist and I'm like, I have to check this out. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I'm fine with that. I mean, um, I actually worked at a library um, when I was about 16, but it was by f- force of law. with a misdemeanor matt Uh, i i got sentenced in teen court right really and i was allowed to choose uh, a speeding ticket okay and i I was allowed to choose my punishment alexa stop jesus christ um is that another dog that was alexa that was my speaker Oh. <laughs> I like that you, you were saying I had, I was allowed to choose my punishment and then Alexa Anyways, started I was playing. A, yeah, I, uh, I was allowed to choose my punishment and there was not robotic uh, listening devices throughout the home at the time. Um, but I, oh, that's I, you know, I right chose there. the library because I love the library, mm-hmm. but my friend chose the uh, municipal airport Ooh. and as like a sky cap. And he got tons of like tips, which you were not supposed to get during uh, court sh- as a volunteer because he was just like helping with baggage. And he made like 60 bucks, whereas like I had to get up at the butt crack of dawn and go and like vacuum the millions of rows of stacks. <laughs> right. We don't get tips either. Sucked. No, no, there was no tips to be had. So like I actually regretted my experience of working in a library because uh, <laughs> there was no tips. But honestly, honest, like I. You know, there's all kinds of different librarians, but the to me, whenever somebody comes in and they and they want reading recommendations, I live for that. I I mm. like n- I geek out so quickly when that happens, like way more than I do when I go in like the Lego store or something. Like it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, do you I, ask them how much <laughs> how much time they have when they ask for recommendations? No, I I usually start with like. Like, tell me the last five things that you read and enjoyed, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, okay, that's good. whether they were for class or not. And then like, you know, I kind of go from there or like when somebody, somebody came in one time and they were, had to do a project on like Emily Dickinson and wanted to know like which edition that they should look at. And I was like, I was like, well, this edition, 
you know, the, the publisher went through and like changed her punctuation and then removed some of it. So maybe that's not what you want. And, you know, like that's, that's, that really is what I live for. I love that the min- stuff. The it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't happen all that often, but I love it. And then of course, anytime somebody asks for something to read, I'm like, well, there's this guy named Thomas Pynchon. Let me show you that section. Um, yeah, that's the reward, honestly. Uh huh. Well, and I trying to say, take down uh, Elsevier. Uh, can we? Oh, fuck that. Can we just go back to the uh, Emily Dickinson, please? Because um, <laughs> I absolutely love Emily Dickinson, and um, just bought an edition of her complete poems. Nice. Over the Thanksgiving break, and uh, have a edition of her letters, and. Um, I think that she explains humanity and suffering and mental illness maybe in a way that no one else ever has or ever will. Yeah. So like you bringing her up now, I'm probably just coincidental, but like to me, that's a phenomenal um, reference. And that if people who are listening to this don't own sort of the complete works of Emily Dickinson, they need to just go through and just like plow through all of that because I think it's super important. I I agree. She 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 somehow gets it in a way like you're saying that maybe no one else has. I I don't really know, but yeah, I I have a lot of love for her too. Well, and she basically like lived in a closet like for like <laughs> dozens of years and right. really bizarre human experience. Right. Um but like uh let's do a whole nother show that you know, I'll be happy to read through a few of my favorites of Emily Dickinson and we can deconstruct them. Um, that sounds great. I love that. Yeah. I actually like um, to, I like to contrast her with Walt Whitman. Um, who Another one of my all time favorites. Yeah. But I find him interesting because he, he seems to have that sort of that, that depth that Dickinson has, but he, but he's also much more positive and I find that very curious, you know, because he he was gay. Mm-hmm. And so, he, you know, he had his own sort of situation there. But then he's also living at that time and he's male. So to what degree does he get to 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 have that exuberance where she's not allowed to have it because she's she's the kind of mad woman in the attic? you know uh-huh. um, well that's interesting i mean i think some of it is like their disposition was she was naturally more depressive melancholic yeah yeah and he was naturally more of like i celebratory or engaged with the world yeah he sure used a lot um, of exclamation points he loved <laughs> uh nude sunbathing as well yeah well i mean who doesn't uh, who doesn't? Right. But Emily Dickinson, I don't think did. That's <laughs> probably, probably a not. safe assumption. Probably not. Um, so, I mean, this is extremely fun for me because mostly on this, you know, we talk about this. Wallace published like 10 books in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about those a lot. Um, and I actually think, you know, with Infinite Jest, that was enough. And like he, there was a big, you know, when he died in 2008, there came out this DT Max story in 2009. Yeah. Do you remember this story that in the New Yorker essay? Um, yeah, I read the New Yorker essay, and then and then he also kind of parlayed that into his biography, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, there was a big a part of that narrative was like Wallace's ability to top infinite chest or like, yeah, do better than infinite chest. And I sort of wonder that wonder about that with Pynchon a lot. Um, mm. you know, did he feel the need to outdo himself or do better? And I, I sort of felt like that with when against the day came out, I was like, wow, this is like gravity's rainbow you know 1.5 but or with 2. hot air balloons instead of v2s i mean yeah. kind of yeah and it, like that's how i feel about it but a lot of people and a lot of the criticism out there definitely couches against the day as a lesser version of of gravity's rainbow and i personally i disagree with that um and whenever we get around to it i'm definitely going to take that you know I'm going to take some of these critics to task. Absolutely. Um, I personally, I, I do actually think that Wallace did top infinite jest in his short stories. Some of his short stories, I think because of their very efficiency are absolutely brilliant. Like I think octet is one of the most amazing short stories I've ever read in my life. Um, and I, I think to me, I think that story is actually Wallace perfection. Um, there are moments in the Pale King, but I'm I'm so conflicted yeah. about the Pale King because I don't know what he wrote versus what the editor did, you know. Um, and I mean, all kinds of adulation to Michael Peach for putting all that together. I'm sure that was no easy task at all. Mm-hmm. But I have a really hard time. I'm okay saying that David Foster Wallace wrote The Pale King. I'm not okay saying that David Foster Wallace is the author of The Pale King. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's the reason that it did not win the Pulitzer, I'm totally on board with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. But there, there are some moments there that the way that it opens, that sort of pan to the Midwest. Like, I, uh-huh. I've lived in Ohio basically all my life. And I like I get that like everything that he's talking about there the tornado alley and all this sort of stuff like that responds to me when I when I first got that book I remember I I I ordered a digital copy and I pre ordered the physical copy it showed up a little bit early and I brought it to work that day and I read it to lunch and I opened the book and I started reading and I literally started crying now I don't cry that's not a thing. <laughs> and I definitely have a, a rule about not crying at work. But here I was sure. crying at work because that that opening to The Pale King, two things. Number one, I felt like I was mourning a friend who had passed away. But number two, that is that resonated with me so deeply being from the Midwest huh. that it just, yeah. I mean, I really did. And that's crazy to me. And that... that- that section that was published as the opening of the pale King came out and a journal in like 2002. Right. And mm-hmm. so the pale King was published in 2011. And so like, that was old news to me, man. Like reading that, that opening, um, I felt like was out of place with the rest of the thing about taxes. Oh, it's like totally. IRS. Right. Yeah. It's totally out of place. Absolutely. It's still beautiful, but it's yeah. It, it doesn't honestly really belong in that book, in my opinion. But it's beautiful, so I'll mm-hmm. take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think it is one of the most p- 
poetic things he ever wrote. Um, And I think that it warrants publication in a book. Uh I just, going back to your earlier point, whether or not he's the author of that book Uh is, uh, you know, that speaks to that. Like, would he have selected that as the opening of the book? I don't know. I don't know. Our friend Tim Groland, who is the guest on episode five, he has a book coming out next year called The Art of Editing, Raymond Carver and David Foster Wallace. Um, mm. which I'm hopeful it's out on Bloomsbury press in February. I'm hopeful that it will kind of illuminate some of this stuff more for us. Cause that's kind of like the main research area that he's spent a lot of time in is the editing and publication of the pale King. Wow. So fingers crossed Tim will, yeah, yeah, Tim will yeah. shine some light on some of this for us. Hmm. I mean, and, and that's an interesting thing with like a lot of other authors who, you know, they have their affairs in order before they pass. Uh-huh. They they know, like, you know, don't publish this or do publish that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, like what you said with, with Pynchon, you've sort of accepted that Bleeding Edge could be his last book, but there's got to be a box of stuff that he's just never published that we'll see the light of day some uh-huh. point. I'm, right? not, I'm honestly not entirely sure. Um I have this I have this idea that he wrote a few short stories, got them published. While he was working on us, he was also working on V. Mm-hmm. Then he wrote he started working on The Crying of Lot 49 and started doing at least research on Gravity's Rainbow simultaneously. There's right, this yeah. there's this whole theory that he basically published The Crying of Lot 49 in order to have money so that he could write Gravity's Rainbow. That mm-hmm. may or may not be true. Then he wrote Gravity's Rainbow. He published it. And then he basically disappeared for a really long mm-hmm. time. Um, he came out with this collection of short stories, but that was effectively you know, just like, hey, the I publisher says that. I should give you something. <laughs> um, you know, and, then he, and then he comes back with Vineland. I, I personally, I think that during that time, he was writing and researching Mason and Dixon and Against the Day. Against the Day came out in 2006. I think he had it mostly written by the late 80s. And wow. and That'd the, be a huge gap. Yeah, and I and I in the, the 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 sort of the smaller books that came out like Vineland and Inherent Vice and things like that. Like I I think those are more indicative of what he's written more or less contemporaneously to when they came out. Like I Obviously, he didn't start Bleeding Edge until at least 2001. Um, But I would say he probably started it more like 2009 or something like, you know, somewhere around there, just based on some of the things that are mentioned in that book and how they fall out later on. Um, So, yeah, I I actually think I, I honestly don't know that he has. I think he's published what he's want to publish at this point. If he has another book, I think it would, might be another one of those short ones, shorter ones, I should say. I think it's possible, and I, this is me being hopeful like I rarely am. I think, <laughs> I think it's possible that he does have one massive book left that he is specifically waiting until he is passed away to publish. Like I, I would love cool. to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know that, you know, even though that's going to add at least another two to three years to our podcast, I would love it. <laughs> um, do you do the editing for your podcast, Bo? I, I do. Uh, well, yeah. so I this, understand that you, why you want it to end. <laughs> yeah. It, actually, in this current season, um, Aug has been helping out with the editing. So it's been, uh, it's been easier, but also like now that Chris has left the podcast, I'm hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of feel like, the bare naked ladies after uh, <laughs> after Steve left, and you know, he's just got to figure out a way to go on. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've been hosting, so on that, I have more responsibility there. But Aug's been helping out with editing, so less responsibility there. It's been mm-hmm. a fairer balance that way. But yeah, nice. yeah, I think about that sometimes, Matt. Like, oh, what would happen if Matt just couldn't do the show anymore? Like, what would happen to this podcast? Would I? You'd be, you'd be fine. Would I try be, and find someone else? Would it? Just, would we just wrap it? Like man. I could recommend a dozen people who could do this better than me. So <laughs> you'd have no. Problem. I can think of some great people as well, but uh, better. I don't think so, dude. I I had a I really struggled with the decision, um, as I suppose a lot of, of I keep thinking of it in terms of a band. Um, yeah, totally. But it to me what it came down to was I feel like we had have at least implied that we were going to cover all of Pinchon's books. Mm-hmm. We may not have stated that directly. We certainly didn't promise that, <laughs> Yeah, but Maybe I feel promise. like we implied it over the years. And I feel like, you know, he left right at when we right, when we finished gravity's rainbow and that during that season, we picked up, at least twice as many listeners as we had before. So, you know, like mm. a dozen listeners now. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what happens <coughs> when you do a podcast about like a kind of vanishingly obscure yeah, um, yeah. topic yeah. of interest. And yeah, I, I really I really struggled with what to do and what it was for me. What I feel like we didn't create a community, but we helped a community find itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And 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 we gave people who were fans of this relatively obscure or at least difficult author a place to talk to each other. Um, and I didn't want to let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I that's why I decided to carry on, you know, without Chris. But I I spent a good month, maybe more debating about it. And I, you know, I emailed everybody who's currently on the show saying, are you guys still in or, you know, mm-hmm. all this, does anybody else want to host? There was like crickets at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 it was, it was hard. It was, but I eventually I just decided that's what I felt was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So I guess that kind of, as we're thinking about, uh, winding down here brings up, you know, and we sort of covered this a little bit, but like, what's it like to do a literary podcast? Like what motivates you? Why do you do it? What is the continued value? Um, what's, what's like a day in the life for, for Bo Butler doing this, this podcast? Um, so uh, as, as I think Matt, you said before, our podcast is a little different than, than yours. You know, what, what, get, what motivates me is I'm, I am absolutely interested in getting people to read the hard books because mm-hmm. the the great books of literature are great for a reason. 
And a lot of times they're hard for the same reason. <laughs> yeah, so, <totally. laughs> so I'm very interested in sort of helping people over the hurdles to, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that I'm an authority on it, but uh, you know, that's why people have, you know, apparently at least since the dawn of ARPANET sat around and talked about books. Um, and, and so that's, that's what it is. It's this, mm-hmm. I, I like what you guys do and I like, that you take a different approach on this sort of stuff. But for me, I'm interested in, can I, you know, there's this kid who was assigned to read the crying lot 49 for his, you know, sophomore literature class. Can I help him Mm -hmm. get through that book and then maybe pick up gravity's rainbow? You know, that's what, that's what, that's what gets me going. Now I like, I both love and hate the social media aspect of yeah. well of the world these days um, <laughs> sure you know and it, sometimes like that part's really great sometimes it's less great um but there's that but then the other part of it is like the people who are on the show with me you know like michelle i've known for oh geez probably two decades at this point or close to it yeah um but these other some of these others who are newer like i've never met them most of them, but they're, my, life. they're yeah. my friends, you know? Um, and especially as we were going through Gravity's Rainbow, like I felt like we were people who had really kind of gone through some shit together. Like that was a couple yeah. of years of work, you know? Good I pun, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I like there, I told when, when we started that season, I told Chris, like, it is to like I kind of gave him a schedule of, of all this, and I said it is absolutely possible that children will be born to panelists during the course of the show who currently do not exist, all right. and that who actually turned out yet. to be true. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we we spent like two years or mm-hmm. so on that book, and yeah, well, yeah like that serious. was. Yeah, it was really, really serious. But, mm-hmm. you know, but coming through that, like I, the people, the, I'm really happy every every couple of weeks when I get together with them to, you know, to talk about Pinchon. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's the world's most sadistic book club. And um, <laughs> yeah, I just really appreciate the people who are on the show with me. Hmm. Very cool. Pretty sure no kid's born as a result of our show, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's what Bo exactly said. Actually, uh, Michelle, that's all I focused on. <laughs> our, uh, our our one panelist, Michelle, literally just had a baby like yesterday. Oh, wow. um, and congrats, I sort of Michelle. like, congrats. yeah, congrats uh-huh. to her. Um, I, she joked around that she was gonna name the kid like at like the kid's name was gonna be Sloth everybody's Rob. name on the on the podcast. I don't think that's what she did, but also Michelle's a little bit unhinged in a great uh-huh. way, so that's possible. Um, but I figured it out, and I realized that like that would have like the conception would have been post Gravity's Rainbow season, pre breeding it, bleeding edge season. You know, like <laughs> so. I think there might have actually been a kid born because of our podcast. Oh, that's great! That's the most you can ask for, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why we come up here. <laughs> well, Bo, it's been so great talking to you, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Are there any yeah. um, any kind of final last thoughts uh, to do with Pynchon, Wallace, the intersections between them that we haven't covered yet that you wanted to touch on but we haven't yet? Um, 
I the only thing I really want to mention is that I feel like Wallace insisted that he was not influenced by Pynchon, or yeah, I think he, really he might did. have even said that he never even read Pynchon. Yeah, or at least Gravity's Rainbow specifically, maybe specifically Gravity's Rainbow, and. I want to call that out for the bullshit that it is. Oh, absolutely. For several sure. reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but the most obvious thing to me is throughout Infinite Jest, there's that whole conversation between Marath and Steeply. Mm-hmm. And it takes place on this, you know, outcropping over Tucson. And there's all this business about their shadows and all that. There yeah. is a scene in Gravity's Rainbow that is almost identical to that. The char- There's yeah, one... That's- there's one male character, one female character, although this one isn't putatively female. It's, <laughs> she's actually female. Um, and they're on the Brocken, and there's the whole Brocken capenched phenomenon, right? Um, and it's it's that whole idea, like there's shadows playing out over all of the land below them. And and that I mean that's also it's it, it's also used a little bit in Goethe's Faust, but mm. but Let's just say the special effects are different. And Wallace definitely borrowed his special effects from that particular scene in Gravity's Rainbow. So I, I just want to throw that little bit of textual evidence out. And and people, you can if you want to hate on me, you can hit me up on Twitter. It's fine. It's at the real Bo Butler. Throw your hate my way. I'm good with it. So Man, I don't know if anyone would dispute uh, the influence of Pynchon on Wallace and that Wallace was uh, was BSing that. Yeah, no one would dispute it except for Wallace. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, and and what's maybe his first published interview with Wall Street Journal in 1987 when Broom of the System came out, they compared him with Pynchon, and he had some response like, well, he sticks his lower lip out and says like, well, I'm my own person too. I mean, kind of (laughs) acknowledging that, yes, he had read, you know, a lot of Pynchon, but he was you know, trying to not be compared with him at every turn. Sure. Because, uh, I mean, I think in Broom of the System, there was a lot of kind of cartoonish character names and scenes yeah. that uh, brought him comparison with, with Pynchon. Right. Um, so I I think it's something from, like I say, his first published interview, that was what the interviewer asked him. And it was like a thing that he tried to separate himself from. So, and and um, I can, and I can respect that. I really can. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you're being interviewed in the Wall Street Journal, and they're comparing you somewhat favorably to Thomas Pynchon. Take that for the compliment <laughs> it. that it is. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. There are worse things on your, on your first outing too. Like yeah. yeah. So. That's yep. pretty great. Cool. Awesome, Bo. Uh, where can people find your show online? Um, you can find us at pinchoninpublic.com. You can also find the podcast in you know iTunes, um, Google Play, all that sort of stuff. We don't do Stitcher because Stitcher is weird. But um, <laughs> yeah, otherwise, if you just do a search for Pinch on in Public, you can also follow the podcast at, at pinchonpod on Twitter or just search us on Facebook at Pinch on in Public. Um, you find us there. And as I mentioned before, you can find me at at the real Bo Butler. Mm-hmm. And you totally should follow Bo. His account is hilarious. Your presence <laughs> on Twitter is one of my favorite. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Uh, particularly the stuff around our podcast beef just had me in, in stitches <laughs> when that started coming out. It's it great. 
from the from the moment I learned of you guys, I never I've never thought of it in any other way but that fight scene in Anchorman. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, was the great. first thing that came to my mind, and it has lasted till right now. I don't know why. <laughs> Get a trident. Yeah. Yeah. Sharp I just tried it. I picture myself just holding a grenade, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that in reality there's actually no physical harm coming my way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, Matt, where can the people find us? We're pretty much at Concavity Show everywhere, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, pretty much. Concavity Show at Twitter, Instagram, Concavity Show gmail.com. Yeah, uh, email us. Um, we should have a end of the year show coming soon, which yep. I'm excited oh, about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to review of the year. I'm looking and, forward uh, to that. And, I like this. And we'll talk about video games this year because I got some good ones. Uh, we could hang out after Bo and talk more about that <laughs> if you want. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm going to drop. And then that'll be out. <laughs> uh, we also <laughs> want to thank some new patrons who, uh, between last episode and this episode, have uh started supporting us there we want to thank our friend Corey baldoff who is the guest on episode four and also again on episode 17 uh joe disney kevin twitchell eric Gerabaldi, joe mclaughlin and tiffany walker thank you guys so much for supporting us and helping helping us out continue doing the show uh if you want to check out our patreon it is patreon uh dot concavity show i think something like that I'll link, we'll link to it in the show notes, whatever that is. <laughs> and as always, we want to thank Robin O'Neill uh, and Andrew Savage of the band Parquet Courts for their generous artistic uh, licenses for the things associated with our show. Um, once again, this has been episode 43 with Bo Butler. Bo, thanks so much, man. This has been really fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really it's been great. It. Awesome. Keep up the good work with Pinching in Public. Hey, you guys keep it up, too. All right. Thanks. All right. Catch me now. Thanks for joining us, Bo. This is gonna be fun. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. I re- I really am. I don't know. This is weird and exciting. Also, because I'm not in charge of hosting and levels, I've poured myself a little drink. Yeah, so. I was gonna ask if you were on uh, White Russian or Black Russian tonight. Or no. <laughs>